Tech Sounds presents EduTrends. Welcome to the EduTrends podcast and webcast uh, prepared by the Institute for the Future of Education. Today we have um, our invited uh, guest is Winslow Burson, is Assistant Director and Director of Research at the School of Information in the University of Arizona. Welcome. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, great to have you here. So you, you're working in a field that is not very well known by the great public. It's called affective computing. Can you tell us what, what it is? Yes, at its simplest, it is to try to understand the emotions of the user, uh, whether it's a learner or in a, fun a functional setting, and to respond appropriately. So to do this computationally, and the way we go about that is to use physiological data, whether it's a facial expression or skin conductance, a heart rate, as well as observation. So we have human coders that correlate this data, and then we understand the emotions, and we can respond appropriately. So if you're frustrated, can we support you with something that makes you less frustrated or helps you understand your frustration in a way that makes the experience at least productive for you? Uh, if you're excited, can we celebrate with you appropriately? Sometimes excitement can be deteriorating learning and other times it can advance learning. So the whole strategy is how do you combine the emotion with the response and can we do this effectively? Okay, so the, the idea is that you have uh, sensors that allow you to detect the emotions of the student and you use artificial intelligence or big data to decide what to do with those emotions. Yes, and it's the combination. It's this transdisciplinary aspect. It's the psychology, the educational intervention. So the deciding what to do has to come from theory from different fields and applied in the context that you're addressing. And then the big data has to do with this for many, many individuals as well as the individual. Right? And so you have the large scale and the small scale, and, and you have to fit those together in ways that actually are, are demonstrated to be effective. And, and why are emotions important in, uh, in education? How do you cope with that? Yeah, so for a long time, education has focused exclusively on the cognitive, uh, more or less exclusively. They, and motivation uh, turns out to be a very, very important part of why people choose to learn and what they want to do and how they can have effect on, uh, in the workplace, uh, in their lives. So motivation is, the, is, is kind of the drive and ability to go after and includes that emotional spectrum. So, the, so um, you know, if you're frustrated, uh, 40, Carol Dweck has shown uh, in her studies of the mind is a muscle and uh, growth theories of intelligence, um, that 40% of people will quit before they even know if they can be good at something. So they think they're not good and they quit. And so if we can attend to the emotional status of that person experiencing frustration when they want to quit and teach them a better strategy, that the mind is like a muscle and you can grow your intelligence, then these are the kinds of strategies that we can implement through affective computing. It's, uh, the, uh, people, for instance, when they're learning math, uh, it's something that uh, they are, they're afraid or stressful, etc. Is there um, a need to eliminate completely stress uh, from no. the learning process? No, no. It's actually more about helping individuals understand the importance of that stress. There's eustress and de-stress, right? So eustress is the productive stress, and the de-stress is the one that is counterproductive, right? And so as you experience those, it's possible to move from de-stress to eustress. So in fact, 
If you're looking at a challenge and you start to experience de-stress, you can reinterpret that as an opportunity to grow your intelligence, that it's an important part. If you didn't experience the distress, then you wouldn't be sufficiently challenged to learn. This would just be either uh, something you enjoy, which in many cases people are not enjoying what they're doing anyway, uh, or a waste of time because it's not adequately challenging, right? And so helping us understand, uh, reinterpret those emotions, having the learner reinterpret their own emotions and having us develop strategies that can support them, like a peer learning companion, an avatar or a peer learner, a human learner. We want to create a combination of virtual and human teams. And so these teams are what can be effective in these strategies. So, uh, so you, you're talking about distress and eustress. Eustress. Yes. So the eustress is this positive notion of that stress is part of the emotion. So, for example, a time pressure can be generative, right? It can help you understand that it's time to put the final touches on the piece and get it ready for, for production. If you don't have that eustress, then you will actually just languish perhaps in, in your current state and not actually come to culmination or finalization. I think what we find in creativity research, which is another uh, highly correlated to, to affect and emotion and intrinsic motivation, is that uh, time pressure for people who are intrinsically motivated and appropriately resourced with actualizing resources, that is the most uh, creative moments of their lives. Where And I think we all experience that when we're on a deadline, but we really believe in the motivation that we're doing. So, so it's the last chapter or the final or uh, in a PhD thesis, getting ready for presentation or throughout our lives, you're coming to a deadline. Uh, you really believe in the importance of this. And that's the use stress that is very productive. It, you know, you can look back on that moment as, oh, this great accomplishment and achievement that you, you know, and that is also correlated to flow, which is optimal experience in life and stuck being the opposite. So my thesis focused explicitly on the stuck, which generally could be the de-stress and the flow, which would have elements of uh, eustress, which uh, is, you know, flow has to be sufficiently challenging that it is engaging and it cannot be so challenging that it is demotivating. Okay, I, I can relate to that, to the pressure of uh, <laughs> everyday life. Deadlines. And, uh, I, tend yes, to, yes. I tend to accomplish my task as uh, uh, <laughs> studying something and then analyzing different options. And when the time is up, I have to make a, a decision and, and, and go there. I don't know if it's a good example of that. Can, can you tell us some, some examples of the use of affective computer learning situations? Yes. Uh, so uh, I had the opportunity in my thesis at the MIT Media Lab in the affective computing group led by Roz Picard uh, to use many of the different sensors that had already been uh, produced in the group. So we had a skin conductance sensor, a posture chair that knows if you're sitting forward or back or slouching in a chair and um, a facial expression anal analysis, as well as head nod and head tilt, uh, pupil dilation, taking all of these different physiological sensors and giving a challenging task. We use the Towers of Hanoi, which is a famous math problem um, and used a lot in psychology to understand uh, learning and inhibition and frustration. So we used a task that was already well studied. We used the sensors on the individual and we calibrated the task for middle school students um, 11 to 13 year olds in a public school setting that was particularly frustrating. So usually the task is presented with three to four discs. 
we calibrated it through trials, pilot studies, that showed that we needed to put six or seven disks so that the students would get really frustrated. And we gave them a quit button. So we could use this combination of human observation about when people are frustrated, the physiological and data science that was looking at uh, correlates to that frustration, and the behavior of actually quitting. So they could hit the quit button, and they believed that they would be able to quit at that time. Unfortunately for them at the moment, we said, hey, do you remember that strategy about the mind as a muscle and the idea that if it's challenging, this could actually be interpreted as eustress, as a chance to grow your intelligence. So do not, do you think you can move, use this strategy? We didn't say all these words because they were 11 to 13 year olds, but we said, do you think you can use that strategy to essentially move from your frustration to your flow, from your de-stress to your eustress? Uh, so that is an example of a just-in-time, uh, personally tailored affective computing technology that includes a lot of different disciplines. It includes the mind as a muscle, the data science and physiological sensing, as well as uh, interpersonal social dynamics. So this character created peer rapport by mirroring, social mirroring. So in everyday life, in everyday situations, humans are very tuned to each other. They nod heads at the same time, they change their posture at the same time. Those are the kinds of signals that we used to create an additional channel of likability and persuasion that allowed the character to be more convincing and supportive to the learner. Great. Uh, and have you done some uh, experiments with this uh, likability? Yes, yes. So, so we found in our studies that, uh, that individuals would find the character more likable and persuasive. And um, what's important about these kinds of studies is that you can use the high resolution and labor intensive studies with all the physiological sensors to encode these same strategies at scale. Right? So you can move from the individual and the in highly instrumented to uh, everyday laptop environments that still have facial expression analysis from the cameras, um, maybe still have pressure analysis on the trackpad. Uh, and then you can look at the patterns of engagement. And so you can still get elements of the kind of richer environment that is in the research laboratory out into the world um, on devices that we have in, in our everyday um, lives, ranging from laptops to cell phones. So what I understand is that you uh, do these things on the lab with a lot of sensors, and then you correlate that with facial expressions or other movements of the uh, path, uh, et cetera, so that uh, in, uh, when you scale that uh, to many students, the approach will be to interpret those facial uh, expressions and correlate them to the, what you have found in the lab. Uh, that, yes, uh, yes, yes, to the extent possible. So some individuals, actually many people have this question in, in these presentations. Um, they say, well, which sensor worked best? Which one, you know, what would you recommend? You have all these, we're not going to be able to use them all, but which would you say? Can we just use the mouse? Can we just use the camera? Um, it turns out that the range of emotional expression is different for different individuals. Some people squeeze the mouse really hard, so all of, a lot of their frustration is channeled into their hand and fingers, and the rest of their body is looking engaged and less frustrated. Other people are putting a lot of their energy into their mouth with asymmetric mouth movements. And we have, the cam we have the character mirror those. So it's kind of exciting or interesting to see shared frustration in the, you know, I'm even supported right now, you're frowning a little and I'm mm -hmm. frowning. And this is the social mirroring that we were able to, 
to get a automated character. And this, this comes from prior research that says automation can, can care precisely. It can care in the same way for all individuals, which could be, um, I mean, it, what it allows for in an experimental context is to control for the differences. If you have a human trying to mirror, they're going to pay different attention to different learners, and different learners will interpret that human different ways. But if we have the avatar, then we can tailor the avatar even more precisely and get rid of some of that experimental noise. Um, but you're right. What we can do is once we have enough of those studies, we can understand what is working best and what can scale. We are going to certainly miss certain individuals that are maybe um, using showing their pressure in their blood pressure. If we don't have a blood pressure sensor in, in the end user state, then that class or set of individuals are, are not attended by our technology yet. So this, the concern is to understand what size is that population, what type of learner is that population, and, and eventually how do we find ways to uh, uh, either correlate that enough to other micro demonstrations that, that are harder to detect that we haven't and incorporate those back into the systems. Mm -hmm. And, and, and when you use only um, uh, um, uh, simple uh, media for input like cameras or uh, the stress on the on the pad or the track point of the computer, um, do you think that there are uh, cultural differences that people from Mexico, Asia, United States will uh, react uh, differently? Well, there, and, and uh, how do you cope with that? Yes, yes. So we have not done a lot of uh, those types of studies, but I do believe from other researchers that they're that they're very important. There's, I would say, two uh, significant um, axes at least. Uh, one is the individual expression of emotion in these cultures. It could be different. So, so certainly, uh, if we take a very simple example, um, in some Asian cultures, there's a lot more head motion and uh, ambiguity to the head nod or head shake. In some cultures, a head nod is actually a no, right? And so you get so so you have certain you know categorical differences that uh, need to be trained on. So a, a broader version of your of your question is how robust are these implementations across uh, scenarios and individuals? And um, it turns out it's a complex field, and it uh, requires tuning to the to the um, domain. So you know, it, so you can't readily just say, "Well, we've done this in the one-on-one -on -one, uh, Towers of Hanoi experiment, and therefore we expect it to work in the team-based astronaut robot mission simulator." Right, which is another system that we have built, and we look at the interpersonal dynamics between humans and robots, and humans and humans, and humans and mission control, and you know those are all stressful environments, um, and you can learn a lot by taking each of these different roles, but you do need to train the affective algorithms and responses for those new scenarios because they they are different both in age uh, and in scenario and therefore to answer your question uh, likewise for cultural differences um, uh, so the two parts I would I said was uh, there's the individual but another big part of cultural differences is the goals and uh, approaches in learning so a colleague of mine does research on um, unintelligent tutoring systems, uh, largely cognitive systems, in the, the U.S. versus uh, other countries. And in the U.S., we take an individual learner scenario. So you're working one-on-one. -on -one. You need to perform on your own, largely, which can also be a fault of our system. But in some other countries, um, they have shown that it's a team-based activity, 
And if somebody has the answer, uh, your ability to get that answer from a colleague and implement it as your own answer, uh, we would call that a form of cheating or representation of knowledge that you wouldn't necessarily have. And when I say we, the US system, um, uh, so the place that many intelligent tutoring systems would say, this is a problem. This is gaming the system. Gaming is a form of manipulation. Uh, whereas instead, if we design intelligent tutoring systems for the culturally appropriate activities of these societies that value team collaboration and collective action, which is absent by and large in some of the US approaches when, and, and to our great detriment, I believe, um, that is another very important piece of the cultural equation. Yes, so social learning is a very important. Uh, in some in some cultures, it's emphasized in the classroom, uh, you know, explicitly, intrinsically. In in the U.S., it's uh, far too often ignored. Okay. Do you see some uh, applications of effective computing starting to be used, like in real classroom situation, or uh, where are the opportunities to uh, to scale them? Yes, yes. So uh, one of the one of the um, kind of significantly scaled scenarios is what I was speaking about. So we moved the intelligent tutor from the towers into classrooms with computer uh, sensors in public classrooms with 25 students at a time. So we were able to collect a significant amount of data over over many semesters, and we were then able to translate those lessons, those data algorithms, and implement those into online intelligent systems that didn't even necessarily use sensors. So we could look at the patterns of engagement and the use of hints and the confidence of answering questions um, as correlates to affective support um, you know, and use those. So this, this project is called uh, MathSpring out of uh, University of Amherst, Massachusetts Amherst. Um, and uh, it's available online uh, at, at scale. So there's been tens of thousands of users of that. Um, a different approach, and you said affective computing rather than uh, in, in necessarily in education, has been a commercial approach for advertisements. So looking at engagement uh, and um, and uh, in terms of attention within uh, TV scenarios during the Super Bowl, at, you know, so deploying camera-based TV systems to uh, to promote uh, commercial activity. Um, there have been some more recent studies in, say, hospitals. Um, again, not necessarily at scale, so not addressing your question, but looking at. Um, individuals in the workplace, the doctors and the team and the stress that can occur in some of these environments. If a patient or a family member is yelling at a doctor, how does that affect the doctor, uh, not only in the immediate experience, but uh, throughout the shift and maybe across shifts? Um, and how can, in the age of COVID, can we mitigate kind of the extreme stress levels that occur in, in these hospital environments when the conditions are so different from what they've been trained to do. So these are, so, you know, we do see uh, these strategies taking shape in different places. Um, but I do feel like they need to, to, to um, have more impact at scale. So they don't, they don't yet have kind of the largest uh, impact yet. But you, which you, is a but big you think it will? Yes, yes, yes. I mean, I think, I think, uh, even if they don't have as much of the sensors, they have a very significant ability to attend to the personal. I think this is what we're missing in our technology, is that uh, the technology begins to understand me, but on their term, the co corporation's term or the application's term, not on my terms. And so to readopt and empower the 
the end user to toward their own goals in their lives. So he's done exciting work in personal project analysis and how smart homes can be useful for everyday citizens, but also people with special needs, looking at families that struggle with uh, adult children with autism and their daily activities, um, and, and how can you create support structures that they would like to have? How can you give ownership of the design of smart home interventions to that family? How can they program their own smart homes for their own purposes, their own unique purposes that are attuned and evolve those and share those with others? So I think this open scaling strategy is one kind of like the App Store, but for much more social purposes and with much more um, Creative Commons uses. It, it reminds me of a work that uh, uh, you told me about uh, uh, people live with Alzheimer's. Um, mm -hmm. right? Yes, yes. So similar. another great example. So we had done this work with uh, smart homes with autism and with uh, recent graduates of universities with their own professional goals to do well at work or to learn the guitar or write an autobiography. Uh, we took this to the healthcare setting and nurse gerontologists said one of the things that families struggle most when a family member declines is the burden that it takes, particularly in dressing behavior. So somebody who's no longer being um, capable of dressing themselves, they don't want somebody else in their room uh, helping them dress. You know, the father with a daughter, they don't want their daughter to be there while they're taking their clothes off. Uh, and so they yell at the daughter and that creates this big burden on the daughter or the family member. Often it's, it's um, a spouse uh, or a daughter. Uh, um, but I, even within the same gender, you still have that kind of conflict. You basically don't want somebody to be a part of that. So we created a technology that um, created a, uh, a intelligent tutoring system embedded in a piece of furniture, the dresser. And so the dresser has lights on the front that have, uh, it's, and it has a, a tablet at the top that says, um, hi, Wynn, it's time to get dressed. Come over to the dresser. So if I respond, uh, that even just that piece of information can be transmitted to my caregiver's telephone and says, Wynn is starting to get dressed. And if I'm not getting dressed, then maybe my caregiver has to come back and, and help me get to the dresser, right? And maybe, I, maybe the rest of the scenario works from there. Once I am there, the, the, the dresser can say, open the drawer with a green light. And what's important about these strategies is we're using best practices. Um, so one of the best practices is that sentence has to be very, very simple. You can't say, open the drawer with a green light and take out your shirt. It's a compound sentence that doesn't work. But these are the difficulties and opportunities in the design of these systems. It sounds very simple, but it requires the multiple stakeholders and the diverse expertise from individuals who have language ability. So we will look at speech pathologists and linguists uh, in these scenarios. We look at nurse gerontologists and caretakers who know the dynamic of the family. And then we work with technologists to create the low-cost sensors and the robustness that's possible. And each of these pieces, that's what's kind of both exciting and challenging about the discipline is that it merges these many different opportunities. Eventually at scale in the dressing scenario, we can have new patterns of the duration of time that people can stay at home and, um, and benefit from the support of their families before maybe they do have to move to an institution because either the dressing is no longer working or other parts of their lives like incontinence or lack of um, support in their eating and nutrition uh, are significant enough that they need maybe support that is beyond the capability of a caregiver or a family member. 
Great. I, I was hearing that what you said about different uh, stakeholders that you need for this, and I uh, imagine, uh, well, this is clearly a very interdisciplinary work. So how, how do you accomplish this and what skills do you need from the person leading this team uh, that is not only research because there's also I don't know, product development or the, the no. The, of, uh, yeah. So, I mean, I think, again, the, the scenario will, um, the, the answer to that question uh, has to do with which are the scenarios that you're implementing, whether it's in a commercial advertisement setting. Uh, so maybe you need business and, and marketing scenarios. Um, if you're in the healthcare setting, you're going to need the nurse gerontologists and the social workers and the family uh, members to be a part of the system. Um, the core of the affective computing is the appreciation of the technological sensing uh, and data understanding, the filtering and uh, data analysis, um, coupled with the psychology, right? So understanding the psychology of emotion and how it impacts the scenario, either at the individual or small team or large team level. So that, I would say, is core. But uh, a colleague of mine, for example, was working on uh, a system that was an intelligent um, uh, interview coach. Uh, so this would help MIT students who maybe have the um, uh, unfortunate uh, stereotype of maybe not having the strongest interview skills or maybe being better at the technical than the personal, uh, this coach would look at how they're coming across personally and what are the affective elements of those in a dialogue. And so they have the questions and they look at the confidence and the emotions and the heart rate and the facial expressions that would correlate to the avatar that was being presented as the interviewer. And so in that case, you're, gonna, you're not going to need a nurse gerontologist. You may still need a linguist. It, again, it depends on the modalities, right? So if you're frustrating in driving, there may or may not be a speech-based content component. There's increasingly speech-based, but you know, 10 years ago, there was, you're not necessarily talking to your car or uh, hearing words from your car. Now you are, right? And so these, so you need the, I think in any transdisciplinary activity, you need the stakeholders that are, um, are uh, pertinent to the activity. And therefore, to answer the, how do you lead this? You need individuals who have experience through multiple cycles of, of uh, engaging diverse stakeholders and respecting those contributions and ensuring that the facilitation of the, of the project is attentive and reviewed uh, effectively, and then ultimately coming together as a cohesive whole uh, to have the effect that you want to have. Um, there's, there's areas of design-based research and collaborative participatory design. These are effective strategies, um, both in education and in uh, challenging um, methods of solving difficult, what we call wicked problems eventually, uh, or super wicked problems when they're affecting large-scale society and are immediate, like climate change or uh, other you know, issues of that nature. Okay, thank, thank you very much. I, ha I have one, one last question uh, that is related to the launching, recent launching of the Metaverse uh, project by, by Meta, formerly called uh, Facebook, and uh, people are wondering what will be the use of uh, that tool in education, if you have some thoughts about the future of this or other tools uh, similar to this one, and if there's a relationship with your field. Absolutely. So. Um... I think Meta and Metaverse has had a lot of uh, both excitement and criticism about the approach. Ultimately, 
Uh, it's um, you know from a, a large uh, corporation and company that has not had the best track record for the individual well-being, and certainly even you know if we talk about this kind of scandalous papers and uh, you know uh, cables, if you will, that have been released recently, then there's a lot of questions on what is going to be the benefit or detriment of um, large-scale use of this kind of environment. But certainly, there's a lot of attraction to using platforms that are powerful and significant and so there's there's um, you know um, Faustian uh, deal if you will you know um, the metaverse is not a new thing meta is new but metaverse is a old uh, concept that is evolving and the idea is basically that you can have a simulated environment that can help you um, both connect across distances but also experience new experiences that you may or may not be able to experience um, in the real world, certainly at your own location, but maybe not in the real world at all, like simulated gaming environments or uh, difficult three-dimensional tasks, uh, all sorts of interesting opportunities that can kind of expand our capabilities, intelligences, uh, and our collaborations. So I think it's a very exciting and powerful um, environment, these kind of virtual simulated environments to look at team dynamics and individual learning and the ability of an individual to move across domains and competencies within that. Sometimes you may be adding a technical contribution and other times you might be a leader or a facilitator and those start to get to some of the soft skills that we've been talking about. So I think if you go beyond the specific implementation of the metaverse or, uh, or uh, of metas, metaverse, if you will, that the future of these kinds of environments, the richer they are, the more owned by the end user, and the, the more fluid and flexible they are as actualizing resources for the fostering of creativity and the study of team dynamics and leadership. Um, we are actually advancing projects in this. We have a project called the Holodeck, which is inspired by the Star Trek Enterprise, where you can go into a room either as an individual or a team, and you can experience either a leisure activity or an advanced scientific activity. So we said, we want to make a new microscope or a telescope and use it for research like microscopes and telescopes for many different elements, whether it's a smart classroom or a smart home or a hospital setting. These are the kinds of things with these already uh, working physiological sensors and the visual, the auditory, the physical, so you know where I am in this environment, you know where a social robot might be. With that kind of capability that goes far beyond the metaverse, the, the holodeck fuses the physical and digital, and I think MIT's Bits Center for Bits and Atoms very early on, which was also one of the uh, Neil Gershenfeld's um, proponents of the makerspace movement and the Fab Lab internationally, is a place where you really appreciate the value of the real world. You know, uh, So I think we will see technology and uh, some people will live their entire lives in virtual worlds. Um, but I, I think that we have been trained evolutionarily and we have a physical world that is critically important to our sustenance and has huge needs from us. So I think a lot of this needs to come back uh, and cycle back and forth between virtual and physical so that we understand how to tackle the grand challenges of our time and uh, prepare the next generation of uh, individuals, teams, organizations, and society to tackle the challenges of, of the future. Well, uh, fascinating uh, views on the future of those kind of uh, technologies and how they apply or they're applied to education. Thank you, Winslow for this uh, fascinating uh, talk about this uh, subject. And uh, we will be uh, sure uh, reaching to you to share uh, new advancements on this area. I hope that 
uh, expect my, our audience that will, they also will enjoy this. Thank you, Pepe. It's been a pleasure to be here to enjoy the conference. And I believe uh, the Institute for the Future of Education has a bright and promising future. And I am very much looking forward to collaborating in, in that in agenda. Sure, yeah, we, we will do that. Thanks. Thank you very much. For more information, visit observatory.tech.mx slash edutrendspodcast and ife.tech.mx. A special thanks to Tecnológico de Monterrey, the Institute for the Future of Education, and the Tech Sounds team. Tech Sounds producer, Miguel Mejia. Edutrends producers, Esteban Venegas and Christian Guijosa. Post-production, Alejandro Sánchez. Stay tuned and play Tech Sounds in your favorite podcast app for other great shows and content.